He got a hold of my life. I've got Jesus. How could I want more? The love of God gave me his pardon. The love of God won't let me stay the same. The love of God pulls me up higher. Really stronger, that's why I got saved. I'm undone by the mercy of Jesus. I'm undone by the goodness of the Lord. I'm restored and made right. He got a hold of my life. I've got Jesus. How could I want more? I'm undone by the mercy of Jesus. I'm undone by the goodness of the Lord. I'm restored and made right. He got a hold of my life. I've got Jesus. How could I want more? I've got Jesus. How could I want more? I've got Jesus, how could I want more? Revelation chapter 12. Boy, Jesus ever get a hold of your life? Say amen. amen. You know, it's one of the difference in praying and prayer and Jesus getting a hold of your life. <laughs> amen. Look at Revelation chapter 12. We're going to read verse 11, then we'll back up and we'll... Um, take kind of a big, big picture look at the cha chapter 12 as we continue our study through the book of Revelation, revealing Jesus as champion. I really do believe that's what Revelation's about. A lot of people look at Revelation as, you know, telling us well, what's going to happen in the end times. It does do some of that, but there's a lot more. John's writing to people who are alive, um, people who are being persecuted, people going through a lot of hard stuff for Jesus, and uh, his words had something for them, and they have something for us uh, as well in this day and time, not just for something uh, in the future. So look, if you will, in Revelation chapter 12, I want to focus on verse 11 uh, for our, our reading tonight, and we're going to back up and, as I said, take a kind of a run at it from the whole chapter. Uh, we may not get every verse in a chapter, we'll kind of take an overview of this chapter. Um, and the Bible says, and they, the followers of Jesus, overcame him, being Satan, uh, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Sometimes you hear a story, or you read a book, or you hear a song, and uh, it's helpful to know the backstory. Uh, what led up to this book? What were the circumstances behind the song? Why does this person act the way they act? Because we all have a, a backstory. Every song, book, movie, whatever has a backstory to it. Um, some of you heard of uh, Ann Voskamp. Y'all know that I've read some, several of her books. I've mentioned her in a couple of sermons. Ann Voskamp writes, as long as thanks is possible, then joy is also possible. As long as thanks is possible, then joy is also possible. And a lot of y'all have um, may know Anne by the idea of uh, listing three things to thank God for every day. Uh, some of uh, uh, I do that every day. I've incurred a lot. I know many of you do that every day. But what's the backstory? You know, is that just a simple little exercise that Anne came up with to sell a book? Uh, to write down three things that you're thankful for every day and kind of have a better day. Yeah, it, let me give you a little bit of the backstory uh, to Anne's life. When Anne was four years old, her little sister was run over 
accidentally by a delivery truck driver and was killed. Uh, and he says one of her earliest memories is seeing that lifeless body in the driveway. And as you might can imagine, uh, because of that, grew up in a very grief-ridden home, a home full of sadness, a home that did not process it much or process it well or talk about it very much at all. Um, just kind of, she just kind of quit existing. Um, no talking, no, 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 no processing, none of that kind of stuff. And, um, and she writes about how difficult that was for her growing up. Uh, she writes this, I wake to the discontent of, of life in my skin. Uh, part of that discontentment and part of that grief and part of that unprocessed grief uh, led Anne to cutting herself at 17 years old. Just in some way, I know some of you that doesn't, you don't know what, why would somebody would do that. I don't really understand why somebody would do that, but it's, a, it's an attempt to numb the pain. It's an attempt to put the pain somewhere else so you don't feel it uh, in your mind and in your heart. She writes, I wake to the, to the discontent of life in my skin. I wake to self-hatred, to the wrestle to get it all done, the relentless anxiety that I am failing, always, always the failing. I yell at the children, I fester with bitterness, I forget doctor appointments, lose library books, live selfishly, skip prayer, complain, go to bed too late, neglect cleaning the toilets. I live tired, afraid, anxious, and weary. And it's out of that backstory that Anne found counting the gifts was the way to freedom. That it wasn't focusing on the pain and it wasn't focusing on the guilt and it wasn't focusing on what she didn't get done and it wasn't focusing on the failure and it wasn't trying uh, to always try to measure up to somebody else's idea of what a perfect mom should be and what a perfect wife should be, what a perfect Christian should be. But it was kind of coming to the place of realizing that Christ has already done what needs to be done. And by noticing the gifts of God, she was able to walk with God through thanksgiving out of that pit. Now, she still struggles, right? Every, all of us do still struggle, right? We still struggle with failures, and we still struggle with things that don't get done, and we still struggle with, with bad self-image and self-hatred perhaps at times, and, but we have an answer, right? Christ has done that. And, and so what I want you to see tonight, that's Anne's backstory. What I want you to see tonight, there's a backstory to this world. It's a backstory to the life that you live in. When you were born into this world, uh, things didn't start with you. <laughs> you know that, but it's hard to remember that. The life had already been going on, and you were born into a story, a true story. I don't mean story by a fiction story. You're born into a true story. I love what, um, what Sam says to Frodo in Lord of the Rings uh, in, in that adventurous tale. He says, I wonder what sort of story we've fallen into. <laughs> <laughs> there's dwarfs and goblins and all manner of things going on. And sometimes you may wonder that. What kind of story is this that I'm living in? And, and the kind of story you think you're in greatly affects your life. And Scripture tells, lets us know that there's several ways we can talk about God's story. God's writing a story with your life and my life. God's writing a story with this world. Uh, you could call it an adventure story because there's a lot of adventure to the story. You could call it a romance because this world was birthed out of love for love and by love. Uh, you can call it a battle because it's that as well. It's more than that. 
It's not just a battle. It's not just an adventure. It's not just a romance. It's more than any one of those three. And I don't want you to think that all life is is a fight, but it is a fight. There is a spiritual battle going on that each one of us needs to be aware of. Satan is at war with God. For an eternity past, Satan had tried to rob God of his glory. He was not able to do that. Uh, he was kicked out of heaven. And today, Satan tries to rob God of his glory by robbing it through us. Because of your connection with Jesus. Or even if you're not saved, if you're not a Christian tonight, because there's a possibility you could have a connection with Jesus. You're a target of the enemy. And there's nowhere to hide. Uh, hadn't thought of this in a long time, but another quote from the Lord of the Rings trilogy, when, uh, and I can't remember exactly who the two characters were, but one of them is trying to tell him, well, you need to go to war. And he says, I will not risk open war. And he says, open war is upon you. <laughs> and you live in a world at war, you can't avoid it. You can't get away from it. That's part of what this life is. And we're going to talk about it tonight. We're going to look at tonight that, uh, that this world is a world at war. God wins. Everybody say God wins. <laughs> Amen. Jesus is the champion, right? But we have a part to play. It influences our lives. And what I want to talk about tonight is, is how we kind of live as Jesus followers in a world at war. And I'm going to talk about tonight three things. I want to talk about how this war commenced in eternity past. I'm going to talk about how it continues in our everyday life. And I'm also going to talk about how it escalates as Satan's time draws near. Let's talk about these three things tonight for Revelation uh, chapter 12. First of all, it started in eternity past. Spiritual warfare did not start when your marriage hit a bad spot. Spiritual warfare did not stop when it start whenever you thought about getting saved. It did not start last week when we had the house cleaned, uh, ready for Joel's graduation, ready for a company to come in and open the cabinet door to get my sweetener for my coffee and the glass bottle of salsa from the top shelf fell and burst right at my feet and splattered all over the kitchen. And my first reaction was, praise God, it didn't hit my foot. That actually wasn't my first reaction. My first reaction was, who put that there? <laughs> right? And of course, it wasn't me because I don't eat salsa, so I know it couldn't be me, even though it was sitting on top of the fruit that I eat. Still couldn't have been me. Now, it, is a, it, is, it will wake you up in the morning more than coffee will. Amen. Laura, Laura's standing right next to me. And I do not recommend that. Now, that's probably bad kitchen stacking more than it is spiritual warfare. But how many of you know Satan would love to take that and get you out of each other with it, right? So you're born into a world at war. If you remember back in Revelation 11, 15, the seventh trumpet sounded, and we're not going to get to the actual events of that until chapter 16. We're still in this interlude that we're talking about. And in chapter 12, uh, John kind of gives us uh, a backstory of kind of what's been going on here. So let's uh, take a look at it, if you will, please. And one of the interesting things here that we'll see is John's not real concerned about pinpointing time in here. And you'll see that as we go along. Look at Revelation chapter 12, and let's look at the first four verses. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a garland of 12 stars. And being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. 
His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. This is a heavenly perspective of some things that have already happened. It introduces us to the war of the ages. Satan, who's called Lucifer, back in Isaiah talks and in Ezekiel talks about how he was created as an angel and he fell. And when he fell, he took a third of the angels with him. And John writes, this is a, a sign, talks about a sign, the woman and the dragon are signs. And signs a big word for John. If you read the Gospel of John, he talks about seven miracles and seven I am. And he calls the miracles signs. They're more than miracles. They point to something. And so this woman and the dragon point to something. There's somebody to tell us about something. So we have to try to decide uh, what this something is. This is the real Star Wars, by the way. This is the war in the stars. Now, Satan, as you know, opposes God and hates everything about God and does all he can possibly do to thwart God's promises. And in this passage, we talk about the, there's a woman, there's a dragon. I think they're fairly easy to identify. Sometimes they're not easy to identify, but I think these are fairly easy to identify. The woman, I believe, is Israel. Uh, some, some try to make her to be Mary uh, because Mary gave birth to Jesus. The child, obviously, the child is Jesus. Some want to call her Mary, but I think you get down to the end of the chapter. It talks about Satan wages war against her offspring, makes that very difficult to maintain. That is Mary, by the way. It says she has a garland of 12 stars, probably the 12 tribes of Israel. Kind of reminds you of Joseph's dream, doesn't it? When uh, the stars bowed down to it. And so it kind of, kind of puts you in the mind uh, of that. And it's very, there's a lot of parallels uh, to that story here in Revelation chapter 12. But the idea, if you ever see one of these pictures of Mary with the 12 stars, Roman, or you see some of those pictures, that's where, this is where that comes from. I think it's wrong. I, don't, I think it's inconsistent with the rest of chapter 12. I truly believe that God had promised to bless the world through the nation of Israel. So I believe this is the country of Israel. Israel gives birth to Jesus. Jesus and Satan immediately tries to destroy him. Have you ever seen anybody cause this much division from birth? I mean, from birth, uh, Herod, you know, whenever Herod finds out about Jesus, he sends the wise men to try to let him know where he is. Why? He wants to kill him. And then when he realizes they've tricked him, he has all the babies from two years old and under killed. This is hatred. This is venomous hatred. And it's inspired, I don't believe, simply by Herod, though he was truly a wicked man. But I believe this is inspired by, by the demonic themselves trying to destroy Jesus before he can carry out uh, God's will. Um, and so the fact that she's clothed with the sun, glory and brilliance, is, uh, talks to the, the uh, elevated place of Israel in God's plan, that one day all the nations will see that Israel is truly God's chosen people. They're going to be lifted up. They're going to be exalted in the end in a very significant and, and, and unusual way. Now, the beef that Satan has with the son is that he is God himself. The beef that he has with the son is that he is out here to rescue God's creation. And so Satan is after him. He's trying to stop him before he ever gets started real well. And Satan is called a red dragon. Probably where we get the um, 
the little devil outfits, you know, with the horns and the tail and that kind of thing, which is a horrible caricature of Satan. But he's, taught, he's called a dragon here. He's called a dragon 13 times in the book of Revelation. What this is a picture of, get this, what this is a picture of, is a picture of somebody deadly, fearsome, cruel, powerful, that opposes God and his people. He's a fearsome creature. He's, he's called enormous and great and large and powerful. He's red, flame-colored, probably uh, refers to his murderous intent to spill blood upon the earth. He has seven heads, seven crowns, and ten horns. The heads and crowns probably refer to his uh, desire to rule the nations, uh, there's seven of them. It may be that, that uh, Satan wants to control, uh, seven is that picture of completion, that Satan wants to control all the kingdoms of the world. It's called the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, right? He wants to control all the kingdoms of this world. It may be in particular talking about uh, the kingdoms that, that make league against God's people at the end of times. It may be referring to that as well. The horn, the word for horn means strength. So he's talking about this is a very strong creature, a very awesome creature, a very fearsome creature, a very mean, murderous kind of creature who we cannot defeat on our own. The idea of this picture is not to strike terror in our hearts, but to help us not to trust in ourselves, to realize that Satan has a supernatural foe, he has demons that are supernatural foes, and he is more than we can deal with on our own, and he's been a murderer from the beginning, way back to Cain and Abel. Remember, Abel uh, was a God-fearer. Abel offered a sacrifice to God. And what happened? Because Cain, look at verse 1 John 3, 12. Now, not as Cain, who was of the evil one. And what did he do? He slew his brother. The evil one is a murderer. He wants to murder you before you, get to before you get saved. He wants to take you to hell with him before you give your life to Christ. And if he can't do that, he wants to, to destroy as best he can. He can't take it away. He can't destroy it. But he wants to harm your relationship with God, your witness for God, your joy in Christ, your peace in Christ. He wants to steal all of that kind of stuff. So understand, we need to be aware of our spiritual enemy. Now, there's an interesting thing here, Revelation 12, 4. It says its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky, flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour the child the moment it was born. Uh, this idea of a third of the stars out of the sky, some people think that this is a meteor shower. Uh, others think uh, other different trans, uh, interpretations of this verse. Uh, I really think it's referring back to the fall of Satan when a third of the angels fell with him. Uh, the problem is time. John seems to put the time differently than Isaiah and Ezekiel put it at. And, um, and like I said, you just don't know what John, John does, just, just doesn't tell us what he's thinking about in terms of time. One way you can, if, you, if it is, John seems to put it kind of either around the time of Christ or even possibly in the future. Uh, one of the ways you can harmonize those two things is that we know in the Old Testament that Satan had access to God. He would go before God and uh, the, the angels of God would appear before God and Satan would appear with him. That's what happened to Job. Remember Job, Satan's before God and he's, and he's accusing God of putting a hedge around Job and he says, man, nobody's gonna serve you for nothing. And we know that Satan accuses us before God day and night. And so this may be toward the end of time that God bars Satan from any entrance to heaven at all, any access to heaven at all. I love what one person said. One person said the idea is that Satan is not a permanent occupant of heaven, but a tolerated intruder. And notice that his primary interest 
is in destroying the child. Look at verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all nations with an iron scepter. And her son was snatched up to God into his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days or three and a half years. The idea there, when it says he will rule all nations, the uh, Greek word there is actually shepherd. It's actually shepherd all nations. And so while there will be uh, a stern authority, absolute authority, uh, you know, there's going to be that. But the idea of shepherd also has the idea of guarding and feeding and protecting. And so this is a real word of comfort for God's people that right in the middle of this spiritual warfare, you have what you need in Christ. You have the shepherd that you and I need in Jesus. And so he doesn't give uh, details of how the son's going to be uh, snatched up. I mean, we know it's in the ascension. We don't have the details of how the woman's going to be taken care of by 1260 days. But we know this, God, and this is what's good for us, God has made provision to protect her before she ever needed it. And aren't you glad before you ever have a need, God's made provision for you. We don't have to cry out for God to come up with a plan or God to come up with an idea or God to come up with a way for us to get out of the, you know, to, to, to walk through the trouble we're in. What we need to cry out for is what we talked about this morning. Lord, show me how to obey you right here. I trust you. You already have provision. You already have protection. Lord, how do I obey you that I can walk in that that you've already made for me? Sometimes I cry out, God, deliver me when I need to be crying out. Help me obey you and see what you've already prepared for me. Look in verse 7. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven once again. I think this goes back to Isaiah probably when Satan fell. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient servant called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. The, uh, the grammar and structure of this Greek sentence has the idea that Satan started this. That Satan initiates the conflict. Michael and his angels fight back. And, uh, you know, with all of our, you know, cinematic imagery with Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and the Mandalorian and all these kinds of things out there these days, none of that can compare with what must have happened when Lucifer, Michael, the archangel, he tends to be the one who leads in war uh, in the Bible. When this absolutely unbelievable war in heaven breaks out. Now, how many of you know Michael's team wins? <laughs> yes. And the big thing is here, Revelation says that Jesus is the champion. The word Satan calls him Satan and the devil here. The word Satan means adversary. He's against you. Anything that you want to do for Christ, anything that Christ nudges you to do and you seek to obey him, always know there's going to be pushback. And that doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. It doesn't mean you're on the wrong track. I heard people say sometimes, well, I knew this was God's will because everything fell into place. Sometimes everything falls apart and it's God's will, <laughs> okay? It's because why? You got an adversary. The devil is a slanderer. The word devil, same person, means slanderer, accuser. He lies and he deceives. The Bible says he leads the whole world astray. So be aware. When you try to witness this week, you're going to catch pushback. When you try to obey God, something's going to kind of come against you. When you're at camp and you try to make a decision for Jesus, something's going to in your heart's going to say, don't do that today. Today's not the right day. That's not God. God says today is the day 
of salvation. And I would encourage the chaperones, teenagers, anybody going to camp, prayer warriors praying for camp, don't wait till Thursday to try to start getting right with God. Go at it tonight and in the morning and Monday night at worship time. That's the time to say, I'm not letting Satan win this battle. I want to push forward in Jesus. Remember, Satan's going to try to distract you, going to try to divide you. He's going to try to, try, to, try to intimidate you in any way that he can. That's his job. So that's the first thing. Second thing, it continues in everyday life. Commenced in eternity past. You were born into a world at war. But it continues in everyday life. And when you get saved, when you finally give your heart and life to Jesus, I say finally, hopefully you give it to Jesus when you're young, but when you give your heart and life to Jesus, that's the end of one battle and the start of another one, right? You've ended the battle for your eternity. You've trusted in Christ. Christ has forgiven you, pardoned you, uh, justified you before God. But how many of you know there's another battle on your hands now, right? The battle to follow Jesus and to, uh, uh, to be a minister of reconciliation, to be an ambassador of reconciliation for him. Let's look at what how this battle is being raised and how Jesus gives us the victory in the middle of it. Look at verses 10 and 11 of the New International Version. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation. The power and the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Messiah, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them where? Before God, day and night, has been hurled down. This is where I get the idea that uh, perhaps Satan is uh, just absolutely barred from heaven anymore, from absolutely coming before God to accuse the brother. I think he's there. I think he can do that today. I don't think he's going to be able to do that when this day comes. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. By the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And we don't know who the loud voice is, probably an angel, typically who it is in Revelation. But the idea in verse 10, uh, when it talks about that, um, that now have come the salvation and power in the kingdom of God, the authority of this Messiah for the accused of our brothers who accuses them has been hurled down. They triumphed over them. This is what's called an aorist verb in the, Greek, in the Greek language, which means this is a decisive, once and for all, victory. This is not a come from behind. This is not last minute. This is not a nail biter. We know Christ wins the victory. And Revelation often writes that in the past tense, even though it's still future for us. Because as I said before, the prophetic past tense means what? It's surely going to happen as if it's already done, as if it's already happened. Now, uh, look at how he says we fight against him. How do you fight against the accuser of the brethren? How do you fight against Satan? He gives us three weapons here, three weapons. Now, Satan's defeat in heaven does not mean that you have an easy skate in life. It doesn't mean an end of physical suffering. It doesn't mean an end of temptation, okay? Even he gives us three weapons here. Look and see how God helps us use these. Number one is the blood of the lamb. Satan accuses us. He accuses us before God. How can you call that person your, 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 your son or your daughter? You're holy, and look at what they're doing. You're blameless, and look at, look at, look at the lying, look at the stealing, look at the pretending, look at the cowardice, look at the failure to stand up. And, and Satan can just point out, point out, point out. And when that starts to sink into us, into our hearts, and we start feeling condemned because, yeah, he's right. I should have done better. I know better. I could be a better mom. I could be a better dad. I could be a better witness. I, how did I miss that opportunity? Anybody beat themselves up besides me around here? I know better. And I, 
Lauren told me the other day, said, how, I was out walking. She said, how was, you, how was you walk? I said, well, I beat myself up for about half of it. <laughs> said, well, very nice at all. Because Satan loves to do that. And if you start listening, if you go, and I know better, and so then what do I say? You know better than that. You preach against that. How in the world? You get sucked into that. But you can't live there. What do you say? We overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. Praise God. That's paid for. Praise God, there's no condemnation in Christ. When Satan accuses you, don't argue with him. Look at that right there. You, you acted like a coward. You should have spoke up, and you didn't, and you made excuses, but the true deal is you just didn't want to, and you were afraid of what somebody might say to you. And what you don't want to say is, oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> what you say is, you're right. I did, and I was, and my Savior completely paid for that one. And I've confessed that. I've repented. I've re-surrendered the throne of my life to Jesus, and it's all been wiped away. And you know what I think, and this is just my own personal opinion now, which I greatly respect, you know. Just my own personal opinion. You know what I think gives Satan a headache? I think he is Satan a headache when he accuses you and tries to condemn you. If you just say, hey, yeah, you're right about that. I'm forgiven. And then just have a praise party. Just start celebrating the forgiveness of God. Start singing a Amazing Grace or start singing I Love You, Lord, or whatever the goodness of God that Lisa sang this morning, whatever you want. Well, just start praising God that you're forgiven. And maybe he probably won't, but you wish he'd just quit bringing that stuff up, right? So just turn it into a praise party. Second thing, first of all, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb. Nothing brought against us can stand because of the blood of Christ. Secondly, the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony. They did not give way in the face of persecution. Even in a world, as we've seen already, engulfed by demons at this time, cursed by God in many ways. Their testimony never wavered. The idea here is the, 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 the influence of an ongoing testimony for Christ. Speak the word. Speak the word. Speak the word to yourself. Speak the word to your family. The word that you've been saved, that you've been redeemed, that you have hope. All this, you know what I would love to do one night is to have a lost person come in and let me say, like I did tonight, somebody <laughs> praise God for something and just everybody in here start just praise God for something God's done in their life. Y'all did good tonight, right? What, what does the lost world need to hear? That we're so glad that Jesus lifted me. Right? Yeah, sometimes it's hard. Yeah, sometimes I fail. Yeah, sometimes I may have decisions I don't know what to do. Yeah, sometimes we face crises that really, you know, we, as Paul says, I despaired even of life. But I'm glad I'm saved. I'm glad Jesus redeemed me. I'm glad I'm forgiven. And I am so glad, and I'll be glad a million years from now for what God has done in my life. And so we overcome him not by shutting up. That's the temptation. When things get hard, it's just to be quiet. But being quiet and having the uh, ridicule notched down a little bit is not winning, it's forfeiting. It's not showing up for the game. You see, you can go to persecuted countries around the world and you can just be nice people, maybe read the Bible in secret, not say anything about Jesus, and you may not get persecuted at all. So it's the blood of the Lamb, it's the word of their testimony, and what? They loved God more than life. 
They love God more than life. If they lost their life for Jesus' sake, that was victory. That's victory. So we, we see it differently. We see it if I get the raise, if I get more money, if people like me more, then that's, that's victory. But for us, for believers in Jesus, uh, when we die, we go to be face-to-face with him. When we die, uh, we go into a place where there are no more disappointments and tears and heartaches and all that kind of stuff. When we die, uh, we've, been, we've, been, we've graduated into the best place possible. And so uh, the victory is not escaping pain. The victory is remaining true to Jesus despite whatever pain may come our way. Tomorrow's Memorial Day. Memorial Day where we remember the many women who gave their lives so that we could be free. And as sad as it is that as much as it grieves us for the many women who gave their lives, um, they're winners, right? Because we're free. I mean, they're not losers, right? They're winners. And so they're winners because... Because we're free. Jesus gave his life. He's the winner. And to give your life for Jesus from a biblical sense is one of the greatest honors that there is. I was reading a story about a guy named Aaron. Aaron is a church planner in one of the, in the middle of Mexico, in an eight-state region that has less than a 1% evangelical witness amongst nearly 23 million people. 23 million people in this eight-state region, less than 1% are evangelical Christians. And, and uh, Aaron is a church planner there, advancing the gospel there. Uh, a lot of um, uh, ancient animist kind of practices. They're very antagonistic uh, toward Aaron, the other church planners there. Uh, Aaron has lost his job because of his faithful witness to Christ. He's routinely threatened because of his faithful witness to Christ. And yet when they ask Aaron, what is the prayer request you have? His prayer request is this, that we will have increased opportunities to speak more about Jesus and see more baptisms and see more churches planted. And what it doesn't say is, which will raise the persecution level even more. He loves not his life even unto the death. Last of all, last of all, it continues to escalate in the future. Satan does not quit. Amen? He doesn't quit. He doesn't give up. Uh, if you handle this situation well this week, he's got another one next week, right? There's always going to be an attack coming from somewhere. And... Um, and one of the places, and it, it continues to escalate, one of the places we're seeing it in America, much more subtle than people like Aaron in the middle of Mexico is facing. In our day, the subtle attack comes across in things like, yeah, you know, Jesus is pretty cool. He's pretty cool, but, you know, a lot of other teachers are pretty cool too, and all religions kind of pretty much stay the same. What we're seeing is a real diminished idea of who Jesus really is. Lifeway did some research recently and uh, found some alarming, alarming things. And this is amongst, uh, amongst evangelicals, born-again Christians, people who confess to be born-again Christians. One of them is that 50% of evangelical respondents said that Jesus is not the only way to God. It's over half. That God accepts worship of all religions. Okay? That's, that's us. That's not the world. That's us. Second, Jesus was created by God. 73% agree with the statement, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. He was not created by God. He is the creator. All things are created by him, for him, and through him. 
Nothing was created that wasn't created by him. He's the creator. He's God. And this, in our day, the attack is much more subtle. And it's, it's escalating in subtlety to say what? Just diminish Jesus. If all he is is another created being, he really doesn't have the ability to save us for all of eternity, does he? Let me give you just one more. Jesus is not God. 43% affirm that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. That is not the picture of Jesus you get in Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. He knows his time is short. It's going to escalate in the future. More difficult times are going to come because Satan realizes his time is short, and so he ramps up the warfare. Even though for some it's going to be subtle, for others it's going to be strong opposition, we have a society where comfort is the goal instead of character. We're willing to give up our testimony. So many times we're willing to give up our character so that we can be happy and comfortable and people will like us. And as Satan ramps up and as things ramp up as we move toward the end of time, we need to make sure that we know who Christ is and we know where we stand. It's interesting that Holt was said one of the first things that he wanted us to pray for the teenagers was for courage was for courage. Why? Because we live in a world where it's going to take some courage, and it's going to take more courage as we move along to really stand with and for uh, Jesus. I read where the Cuban government years ago uh, imprisoned a guy named Noble Alexander. He was a youth pastor. Sorry about that, brother. <laughs> he was a youth pastor. True story. Uh, for 22 years, he was imprisoned for refusing to renounce Christ. He suffered food poisoning because of the food they gave him. He lost consciousness from being dunked in an icy lake while bound. He passed out three times from the pain of being whipped with electrical cables. He sustained gunshots in his hand, leg, and thigh 90 days in a coffin-like box where he could barely move because he had a Bible. And he said the worst, the worst hardest suffering he had the entire time was when his wife divorced him while he was in prison. And Noble Alexander says... You know, our faith is made certain when we're forced to the test. And that's probably not going to happen like that way for most of us, but you're going to be put to the test. Like I said, be a little more subtle. Don't go overboard with Jesus. I mean, settle down. Uh, don't be so public with your faith. You know, you don't have to get up and read your Bible every day. It's going to be so much more subtle for a lot of us, but still understand when you seek to live with and for Jesus and you want to be used as a testimony, you want to bring somebody else to Christ, understand you were born in a world at war. First of all, to keep you from ever getting saved and secondly, from keeping you from your inheritance in Jesus. Would you stand please with the heads bowed and eyes closed? With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around tonight. I don't know where this lands with you tonight. Um, Sometimes things we call spiritual warfare is simply bad consequences of bad decisions from our past. But sometimes it really is, especially when it's trying to prevent you from doing something you know God called you to do next week, tomorrow, in the future. When he's trying to throw a block in your way 
if your heartache comes from something in your past, that's oftentimes results of bad, of bad choices. But when it's trying to throw a block, I'm telling you, some of the teenagers, Satan's going to try to rob your sleep tonight, going to try to make you feel bad at camp. I remember the first day of one of my first mission trips, I got there and I felt like, man, I wish I was back at home. Just emotions, nothing really happened. My emotions were just wired. I don't know how much of that's just me being emotional, how much of that's sort of spiritual warfare, but anything that tries to get you off track with Jesus is dangerous. So, Father, tonight we thank you that Christ is our champion, that he is enough, that we don't face the battle in our own strength, and that we don't uh, strut, we're not proud. Oh, God, we confess our weakness before you. We thank you that you are more than enough for us tonight. As Lisa plays softly, I just want you to keep your heads bowed and eyes closed. Would you pray? Let's ask the Lord what he's saying to you. What he said to you this morning as we talked about obedience. Tonight as we talked about spiritual warfare. Talked about being born into a world at war. Just ask God, where, where, what is he saying to you? How do you obey God tonight? How do you join God in his work this evening? Let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart tonight.